0: Welcome to the Woman's Own Book Club, guest author of the month. The originality of the title of Fenula Dowling's new novel is just a clue to the content of this extraordinary original book. The Man Who Loved Crocodile Tamers is based on the story, the life, love and legacy stories of Fenula's father, Paddy Dowling. But it's much more than that. It's a very layered piece that's been built around memory, her own and others, deep research and very personal experience. It's a melding of fact embellished with fiction and interspersed with what she calls fragments from a writer's diary. Orfanula, a creative writing teacher, is a master of her craft, with five novels and five poetry collections to her name. She was the Woman's Own Guest Author of the Month in June. Well, I'm Nancy Richards, and I recall that I'd had the privilege of speaking to her about her work on a number of occasions – the first time being on the publication of her debut poetry anthology, I, Flying.
1: Flying was uh, my first publication, and I just want to say that was 20 years ago. So um, it feels like a very particularly important year for me, um, because that book set me off, and I had always wanted to be a writer, and I thought I was going to be a novelist, but the first novels were turned down by publishers. And then these these poems came after a a kind of heartbreak, really. Well, the first poems did. And then Gus Ferguson discovered the poems in the back of somebody's forksy and invited me to do a reading. And after the reading said, I'd like to publish your first collection. So that was my little fairy tale moment. It was a fairy tale moment,
0: but it took some while to get there because I was Googling you this morning and I read that you only started writing
1: poetry at the age of 40. Is that true? It's not really true. I had a poem published when I was 15, but I asked them to use a pseudonym. <laughs> and it was in, do you remember Odyssey magazine? Does it yes, still exist? Yes. And I think I asked them to use the pseudonym Lucretia Borgia because I'd been (laughs) (laughs) reading. And the, the editor of Odyssey phoned my mother because she knew her and said, your daughter's written a really nice poem, but we really don't want to go with Lucretia Borgia. And so it actually exists at the Amazwe English Museum when it was still Nell. They took me down to the basement. And showed me that poem. Yeah, so th- there had been some earlier attempts.
0: So writing generally, I mean, I'm not sure, I mean, if your writing came then, and the, the tender age of 15, when did the rest of the writing come? I mean, was it so, were you writing
1: journals, a diarist when you were a kid? Um, I was writing family histories in a comic form. So the family would, you asked about family Christmases, and they were very busy. And every Christmas, the family would get some kind of chronicle from me in a comic form. So I'd either make a big poster with pictures of everybody in the family and a kind of as if it was a bird-watching book or something. And I would describe their genus in a very mocking and satirical way. And then I started to develop a family newspaper that was several pages long. And on Christmas morning, everybody wanted to read this newspaper, which was scurrilous and included some really shocking observations (laughs) about friends and relatives who would then accidentally read the newspaper and become terribly upset. Um, but everybody wanted to see what prize they'd got, you know, and my sister's boyfriend would get the wet bathroom floor a prize or people got prizes for things that hadn't done well because I think I was a satirist and you, my instinct was to try and correct people's behavior by pointing it out to them.
0: Uh, Were you also an archivist? I'm thinking these are
1: absolutely
0: precious documents. Have you kept anything? Yes, they're all
1: stuffed behind cupboards because I I would go and buy huge big pieces of cardboard and and I loved those rottering uh, architect's pens. I loved imitating the actual print of newspapers and I tried to get my handwriting to be as perfectly like print. It was like I wanted to be in print. And then they, these were illustrated with cartoons. I was quite a keen cartoonist at that stage and actually thought I might become an artist. Gosh, newspaper editor Monquet, I think, <laughs> by the sounds of it. But I'm,
0: I'm wondering where this came from. I mean, it's, it's quite difficult to look into one's own DNA, one's own genes, one's own inheritance. But was there anybody sort of encouraging you, saying, come on, darling, you're doing so
1: well? Um, was anybody encouraging you or inspiring you? Well, to have any impact on my very busy parents with their many, many children, you had to be witty. Um, Both of them loved wit, and you had to say what you were going to say very quickly and very smartly, because there were seven other children trying to get a word in the edgeways. So it came quickly that to say something that was... funny and different and amusing and exciting was very important and there was just a huge number of influences but it was very clear to me that in our family money wasn't important, worldly success was hardly important, what was important was spoken word and what literature brought and we were always going to the library and listening to those sort of Barrow tapes. and the, uh, there were various um, sort of spoken word poets that influenced me at that time and 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 Flanders and Swan and just uh, things that were half musical, half funny, half poetical and then performing them back at home or making up our own versions. But all the time just books and reading and all over the house books and my mother's voice reading so beautifully
0: very very strong family members and I I, as you're talking I have an image of a house that was filled with books because certainly you've done a great deal of reading was it filled with books?
1: It was filled with books and the famous story is that when the our house burnt down which is something that occurs in my latest novel the neighbors my parents were both out on Saturday mornings such as these Uh, my father would go riding and my mother would play golf with a couple of old gents who rather admired her and so they were both out doing their thing and one of those huge Cape Town fires started on the mountain behind our house in Lakeside and the southeaster was howling and we lived in an old thatch farmhouse and these ashes these burning coals landed on the thatch And um, we had various people living on the property who helped us to try and douse the thatch, but it was getting out of hand. And so the neighbors formed a human chain to remove stuff from the house. But, of course, they took what seemed important to them. And my mother said, and they left the books behind, the Philistines. (laughs) <laughs> it's a wonderful
0: story. So clearly, you also have the gift of memory. But I'm wondering to what extent writing helps you remember. Because I remember once you told me many years ago that you write every day. Where if you go out for a walk, or whatever, you come home and you write because you never know when that little bit of, that little nugget of information might be useful. Is it something that you, I mean, do you, is, is that your memory because you've written it down? Or you've just got like a very good memory?
1: I I don't think I have a, a better memory than anybody else. I do think memory works when you have some kind of reflection after the day. So whether it is simply that you think about your day at the end of the day and perhaps speak about it to someone else, but how to settle into your mind the events of that day, the feelings of that day. For me, for 20 Four years, I think. I have every weekday morning written about a thousand-word description of the previous day. So, but on Monday it's usually more than a thousand words because I'm catching up Saturday and Sunday. And it is everything. It is the weather. It is conversations. And it is now a compendium that I can search. Um, sometimes if somebody says, oh, you you met my boyfriend once, you taught him, and then I look, I, I sort of Google my own compilation of diary entries, and I'll say, oh, I said this in my diary about his poetry. I said, this is one of, Jan Hendrik is one of the nicest boys in the class, and he has, I think he has a depth of soul or something, and I'm able to tell the person that, that I was... I was attending and I just think that's so important as a writer I think memory is so important to becoming a writer
0: oh gosh that's really quite a story and also it cements anything that you've seen or felt where it was if you don't write it down it may be here today and gone Um, but there you've actually got it sort of in in tangible form is it also I hate to say this because it is such a corny question
1: is it therapeutic Are, are you writing to yourself well, I think I all my writing is an attempt to understand. I feel generally in a state of perplexity. I don't really know what's going on. I'm frequently unhappy in ways I don't understand, and I'm puzzled by people's behavior, and I'm deeply analytical about what has happened. And so I am searching for an answer. So when I sit down to write, I never know. I never know where my book is going or what the answer is. I am in a state of not knowing. And the writing somehow helps me and takes me there. Having read your other books, it feels
0: like you absolutely knew where you were going. I mean, The Fetch, which is an okay, okay, okay. They're, they're just, you know, they flow and they've got such a character and they're fun and they're wishy and charming and, and reflective of all sorts of things. But this one... Um, There's a wonderful quote from Gina. Actually, at this stage, I'm just going to read the back cover of the book because I think it's quite important if you don't know what it's about. Sorry, let me take my copy. So I'm just going to read from the back cover cover of the book. It says, Gina knows hardly anything about her father, apart from the fact that he was once engaged to Koringa, a crocodile tamer, and that he's buried in an unmarked grave. In between shifts at a call centre with doubt always looking over her shoulder, she works on a novel about him, ultimately drawing back the curtain on a complex, sad, but also funny and enchanting life. The Man Who Loved Crocodile Tamers is a story about love, family, fear, and the banishing of fear, a celebration of strong women and a defence of a nervous man. So that's what it's all about. But one of the things that you have one of the techniques that you have employed in the book is that you've brought in Gina who is a writer and she like you not unlike you funnily enough writes on a daily basis so we get fragments of her writer's journal and she says which i thought was such an interesting line she says they say that to write a good book you have to feel that what you are doing is wrong and will bring you public shame So,
1: (laughs) as you were writing this book, what did you feel? I felt terrified. I I thought no one would be interested in the book. That was one thing. I thought, this is so personal. You are interested in your father. You are interested in why your father was engaged to a crocodile tamer, who was then so angry when he broke off the engagement that she threatened to interrupt the wedding, and she demanded £600 in damages you want to write this book, who else could possibly be interested in it? And then I also thought, you want to write a book about your father and you have seven siblings, well, I have six surviving siblings who remember him very well and who can fact-check him. And in in particular, you know that your brothers, who are all older than us girls, had a hard time with your father so your effort to recuperate his memory to find the goodness and worth and value in him will perhaps meet with some stubborn opposition and no you know something like no it wasn't like that so i've i've been quite astonished by the way the book has been received both at home and and generally but yes i think there was a feeling that i would shame myself that um that people wouldn't like the genus section, and that people would be depressed and dismayed by the arc of Paddy's life. But I still wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> and
0: you went for it. So what did you have? What, when, you, when this uh, thing floated into your mind to say, I'm going to write this, what you had was not a great deal of knowledge about your father. So was it that
1: that you were looking
0: to uncover, your father?
1: To uncover him, but perhaps not in the the obvious sense of the biographical facts, although those were interesting to me in my research, but more um, how had he... I mean, I would look at... There's a picture of him swinging his legs. You know, he's, he's been put on a table at the age of four or five in a sailor suit in what must be, you know, the early 1920s. And I'm looking at that sweet little boy and I'm thinking, how did you end up being this man that we your children didn't want to even put up a gravestone for how did you become the man who collapsed in main road Corp bay and shamed us all and my brothers had to were phoned by neighbors and said come and carry your father home how did that happen so for me it was I, I think my main pursuit was his psychology his psyche and and clearly you have to pursue that through actual biographical facts. Where was he? What were the influences? Um, What were the fault lines? Where did he lose confidence in himself? How did he take this turn? So you mentioned your research
0: there which has clearly been extensive. I mean you've done a lot of um, you know self-digging and assuming that you would have also done quite quite a lot of uh, consultation with your siblings and with other people but it seems to me that you've done a huge amount of research not just on your father. Well let's start with the research that you did on your father. Did he have any archive? Did he have any papers? Did you go back to where he was born? How did that work?
1: I had, you know how everybody's into genealogy, and my Aunt Mary, his sister, had, you know, in the very nascent years of family heritage research, she had written two pages about the family, and he obviously appeared there. So I clung to that. Then I found online all the school magazines for the very posh Catholic school he went to, Ratcliffe College. And I managed to find a way of burrowing into their archive. It wasn't publicly available, but I found the kind of the tree. And um, I was able to get the PDFs of of every school magazine from 1928 to 1935. And he was mentioned by name in the debating society or when he came last in a race, which was quite frequent. Um, And then my mother had mentioned to me that my father was mentioned in Guy Butler's um, second volume of memoir, which is the Italian campaign when the um, sixth div was sent to liberate Italy. So that really helped me because I did have a sense early on that some of my father's behavior, for example, he would startle suddenly if you walked into a room. You weren't allowed to walk behind him. He couldn't stand loud noises. He would sometimes have an explosive temper. I thought it fitted a picture of PTSD, although that had never been said aloud in the family. And, in fact, that diagnosis only came into the DSM four years after he died. So um, I, I had that sense of... I had that amount of research of his life, and then I also had—he had attempted to write things, and I had a memory of finding his advertising copy, where he was writing for Truworths and Rex Trueform, and Eno's and and Gunston, and he would be churning out lines that were those kind of punch lines that adverts have, but he would have to produce, say, 20 for each product, and every single sentence was perfect, every single sentence, and indeed people still remember his Gunston adverts and, ah, he knows. And then I also had um, his, very tragically and sadly, the play he was working on at the time of his death. He decided that in the early 1970s to give up copywriting, which was bringing enough money to support a family of eight children. He said, now I'm going to be a writer. All my life I've wanted to be a writer, and I'm going to write a play, and it's going to be put on at the West End. And I think my mother was very sceptical, and he... He really tried to bang in everything and the kitchen sink. It's very interesting for me now as a creative writing teacher. I I, I sat reading that play, and I thought, oh, I could help you. Daddy, I could help you. (laughs) Um, You know, when when somebody has some good ideas, and then they think, but maybe I'll just add that, maybe I'll just add that. And so it was, you know, in his rejection letter, which I composed for the book, it was neither fish nor fowl nor good red herring at the end. (laughs) Um, so I had those things, and then and then I had some intuitions. <laughs> you had a great deal,
0: um, yeah, intuitions, and I'm sure you would have had the spirit of your father, Paddy Dowling, floating quite close to you. What was uh, I'm, I'm cognizant of the fact that tomorrow is Father's Day. What was your relationship like with him? Because I mean, you were clearly fellow writers. Did, did did you have a good relationship with him? Did you talk to him? Did he talk to you?
1: Yeah, I think that was one way in which I did feel. My my experience was different from my siblings and particularly different from my brothers, but also different from, to some extent, from my sisters. My... My father actually spoke to me and was interested in me. I was a strange child. I, mean, I think I've become a strange adult. I would frequently go off to the end of the garden, and I played next to him. There was an old disused well which had been blocked up, but I had friends there who were imaginary, and I spoke to them. I think I was trying to work out my grandmother's death. I was trying to work out how someone had died. So I had a figure who was a grandmother figure, and one day she would be dead and one day she would be alive, but she would speak to me. And there was also a little girl, and she spoke to me. And she had a brother who was killed in a car crash, and then sometimes he wasn't killed in a car crash, and he would come back from the dead. And so I was communicating with the dead. And my sisters and brothers went to my father and said, um, Nula goes to the end of the garden and speaks to people who aren't there. <laughs> and, and my father said, do you? And what is the little girl like? And I told him I loved this little girl. And he said, ah, that is Gander Mary. And, I mean, it was so important, so affirming, not to be seen as strange, but that he knew her in some way. And then there were various times in which he sort of intervened personally for me. Uh, there was a wonderful, to be a wonderful birthday party and of a school friend, and I hadn't been invited. And he phoned the mother and said, Mrs. Osborne, your daughter is having a party. My daughter is not invited. She's very sad. And... And I got invited and I thought the party would be like the invitation which showed a palace with princesses. And we arrived at this very ordinary bungalow in Plumstead. <laughs> and then one day I said to and I said to him I've, I've never been to Cape Town, this city we're sitting in right now. I've just lived all my life here in Lakeside and maybe gone to Musenberg and Simonstown once. And he said, I am going to take you. And So leaving all the other children behind, we caught the train to town. But he treated me like a friend or a girlfriend. And he took me to all the shops and I went on an escalator for the first time and I had a pink milkshake. And he insisted, and my daughter needs dolls' clothes. And He made the assistant, he made me sit on a chair, and the assistants kept coming and bringing those ready-made packs of dolls' clothes, and we would discuss which one I was going to have. And then on the train ride on the way back, we spoke as friends about the things that interested us, which were Egyptology, pharaohs, pyramids, and fairies. And he said... That he would take me one day to Ireland to meet the Queen of the Fairies. And the next time I was at school, uh, the teacher said, Does anybody have news? And she stood there with her cokey and her newsprint. And, I, and the other children said, We've got a new post box and I've got a new baby brother. And I put up my hand and said, I'm going to Ireland to meet the Queen of the Fairies. <laughs> and she just closed that cokey and said, This is for news. And my father would also tell stories. He'd come home from work, an exhausting day of writing copy, and sit with his whiskey on this Morris chair, and we girls would clamber all over him, and he would tell the story in which we were the heroines. So I, I think I wanted to balance the version of my father that my brothers remembered and suffered from. I mean, I, I don't dilute that at all, but I wanted to balance that against another part of the man wow that 's quite a that 's quite a lot of memories
0: that 's quite a lot of relationship building wonderful wonderful stories um, but just going back to how your father was in later times, you know the falling over the unmarked grave, you lost him, you lost that man that was going to take you to see the queen of the fairies he he lost himself somewhere along the line so With this book, you had the skeleton, if I can say, on which you had to put the flesh. So the research you did took you to all sorts of places, literally or figuratively or geographically. But you did a lot of research travel to put flesh on the bones. Not least the sort of the whole war story. That there's some pretty heavy-duty stuff
1: going on there. Where did you go to get all that material? Um, Well, apart from Guy Butler's memoir, I ordered some other memoirs, which was interesting because I saw a little bit of plagiarism where somebody would have almost an identical passage from Guy Butler. And I wasn't sure who'd copied or I think they did phone each other. They perhaps discussed stories. And that's why they were so similar. Um, there is a thesis on the sixth div, which was really good by a chap called Bornhill, which gives the kind of the training information and what it was like in Egypt when they when they were training, and particularly for. I had to do research for sappers because my father was made a sapper, which is about the worst military role you could give a nervous man. So you are your job is to defuse mines and bombs. And, and my father was the sort of man who, if you asked him to change a light bulb, his hands would start shaking immediately. And so... Yeah, I did that research, and I just read and read and read. The war section had to be rewritten and rewritten several times. Um, It did get some criticism from a sister who just said, oh, she, you know, there's just too much war, (laughs) too many guns, too much, you know. And so I took a lot out, and then my agent said, you've taken too much out, you know, so you put things in. So it was awkward. It was... I found it really hard as a woman and as a pacifist to write the war section. But then I wasn't writing it as somebody who appreciates or approves of war. I was writing it as someone who sees it for what it is. It's a destroyer of young male lives interesting that you talk about the trials and tribulations
0: of actually writing a book and if anybody thinks you start at the beginning and finish at the end and that's it it's yeah. so not like that there's a lot <laughs> goes on in between but I think we have to talk about the lady on the title Koringa the crocodile yeah. tamer one thing that you did know about your father
1: it was a bit of a vague memory tell us about the crocodile tamer yeah so I knew my, my father didn't speak about it my mother told us that their wedding had nearly been interrupted by, she called it her, a snake charmer. And that this woman had demanded money, and that there was such a belief that even though the money was found, my mother's aunt um, sold some jewelry to pay this amount she wanted, there was still a belief that she would interrupt this wedding, which was held in the oldest Catholic church in London. And they asked the strongest and biggest and youngest priests to stand outside the church in case she arrived. She she didn't arrive, but in my book, she does. Uh, so well, I mean, that's what you do. You know, you put in the stuff that is like fiction. And it was in, a, I don't know why I didn't write this book years ago, but I suppose in a way we were programmed not to be curious about our parents' lives in some sense, but it was only in 2014, perhaps, that I, I, f- I first mentioned to my sister, Cara. Uh, I said, do you remember that story about our parents' wedding nearly being interrupted by what was she? Uh, a snake charmer. And we, couldn't, we didn't even know how to spell her name. And we started Googling her. We, we Googled the wrong spelling. Then we got the right spelling, Karinga. And Google just exploded with all these results and posters and images and stories. There was just so much information and that she was a crocodile tamer and an escape artist and um, she would run up ladders made of knives and she would put her head inside the jaws of a crocodile and um, that at one stage she earned as much as Neville Chamberlain, the prime minister. Um, and, and so it was extraordinary This moment to think, and you thought, oh, so our father attracted a woman who was this successful and this famous. She was so she was so famous in her time. There even black and white video clips um, of her performing uh, those BBCs of the Pathé videos you can see on YouTube. She was in a rather dreadful film, and yeah. The things they said about her, you know, she has supernatural powers. Mystery girl, why can't she be killed, the posters said. So yeah and sh- your father loved her and she loved
0: him. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in fact I went to the presentation that you gave and you uh, that you gave and you gave us the, the visuals of this extraordinary Karinga. So you had Karinga and you had your papa. Somehow you had to create or invent or put flesh on the bones of their relationship which which I think you took a little bit of artistic license. How did you work that one?
1: I was quite sort of sure from a factual point of view that he had only met Karinga when eventually, towards the end of her career, she came to South Africa. You know when your career's going down? You can can come to South Africa. (laughs) With the boswell Wilkie Circus. And I, I actually have... I'm being delighted by some, like, I don't know if you know Tony Eaton, he said he remembered he's been reading the book and he said he remembers actually going to the Boswell Wilkie Circus and seeing Karinga here in South Africa so I think my father probably met her then, But um, so that would have been only a couple of years before he married my mother and I thought, well there, there's no story there and so for me I ha- in my book I create a meeting between them when he's 12 and she's 16 she was older than him Sometimes she was six years older than him. Sometimes she was four. You know, she was a woman who was sketchy about her age. Um, And, yeah, I wanted, I thought that sometimes, yeah, there's this thing about the truth and its relationship to fiction. Sometimes the truth is best told through fiction. I thought that the real way to depict my father was to show how he needed to be in love with a crocodile tamer that his life was one had been one of shock and fear. His own father had held him only once before going off to France to die in World War I. Um, he was brought up in an all-female household but was sent away to boarding school. And then in his school holidays, he was sent to France to improve his French because the idea that was that he would have some kind of trade career, um, as his grandparents had had. And... Yeah, so I had the sense of a very lonely man who had been somewhat rejected by his mother. Another fact, my mother had told me she must have got this. I imagine some of these conversations taking place on the honeymoon pillow. And she must have said, what was your relationship with your mother like? And he said, she sent me away to school so she could take lovers. Because that was something my mother told me. And just, just knowing one detail like that just gave me a sense of his loneliness And this nervous disposition, which I saw and um, which was obviously then exacerbated by the war. And then I started to imagine how strong women would have appealed to him. Women who, you know, skrik for nix. Women who will put their head inside the jaws of a crocodile tamer. And later, my mother, a woman who was so the opposite of scared of war she actually ran across the channel to join the war effort you know she'd been studying in France in 1939 the war broke out she came over joined the land army joined the RAF as soon as she could got into plotting aircraft and then they said does anyone here like doing crossword puzzles okay you can do codes and ciphers and she was deciphering enemy code and what she had to do then i mean when in the plotting the aircraft there were times she said she would lie awake at night listening to the planes come home from their raids into germany and she knew how many of her pilot friends and boyfriends had left the base she was counting them in at 502 and 504 in the morning and there'd be one missing and that my mother never broke down. But you were aware that she was a bit of an exception that some of the girls had in her diary. There was one surviving year of her diary, and she spoke about one of the other girls breaking down, and she distinguished herself from that girl. So I was very aware, and I knew from my experience of my mother that we never saw her cry. We, we saw her cry when Churchill died, uh, when Pope John 23rd died. So she would she would cry for the, the big and the famous and the not personal. So I was very aware that, yeah, that my father was attracted to fearless women. And that was when it came to me that the title had to be The Man Who Loved Crocodile Tamers, plural. And I mentioned it to my agent and she mentioned it to the publishers who were interested. And they, they all said, we want that book with that title. <laughs> <That's>
0: <laughs> You had such an enormous cauldron full of material and memories, some of them fact and some of them fiction and some of them research and some of them that uh, rather unreliable and some reliable memory, which you have sort of been neatly stirring and blending fact with fiction in your own inimitable way. But somebody who is fictional but maybe not so fictional is Gina, the writer who is busy writing this book. There's a wonderful quote that says... Which I'll try and find just now. But who is Gina? You're at pains to say that it's not you and
1: yet Well, there's no way you can put your whole self into a novel because you are so nuanced and you have so many histories inside you and so many relationships and so many such a strange past and so she had to be stripped down. She's a stripped down version of me. She's a in some ways a harsher more ascetic well she drinks whiskey but i mean she is quite ascetic in many of her habits she is like me in the sense of the discipline of writing she is like me in the sense of not giving up her day job i because of watching what happened to my father when he gave up his day job and to become a writer and watching his growing despair and looking at that typewriter and the pages coming so slowly and not successfully I just knew all my life I will never give up my day job. I will keep – somehow I will pay for this writing career that I want. So that was one thing. Gina works in a call center, which I have never done. But on the other hand, again, truth, some jobs have felt to me like that. When you want to be a writer and you're earning a living some other way, a lot of work feels like you're just answering the phone to somebody who's complaining. So, yeah, it was another kind of truth. It was a way of expressing another kind of truth. I I have Gina living alone, whereas I live with a sister. I've lived with dogs and cats. I stripped her of pets. I stripped her of her sisters live far. She does have sisters, she, but they live far away. I took away friends. I took away going out to lunches. I, I gave her very little because again I was after this truth of just how lonely and austere and difficult it is to write a book Mm. the companion you did give her was doubt
0: and doubt who reclines on the chaise long (laughs) looking at Gina as if to say
1: huh is doubt a companion of yours as well Yes, Doubt dressed exactly as I have Doubt dressed. She's wearing black cigarette pants and pearls, and, and she's so sneering, and you can't do that. I think it's a daily battle for me as a writer, not, not in my morning pages. They are free of doubt because they are, not, they are apparently not going anywhere. They apparently have no publication route. But I do, when I know I'm writing a novel... I do have to do, I have all kinds of tricks to try and force myself. I feel like I have to lull myself into writing the book. I have to soothe myself into starting to write because everything in me is saying, this is not possible. This is beyond your abilities. You have overreached yourself. You are too ambitious. You are not going to be able to achieve that effect you want. And then I soothe myself or I make um, little bargains. Okay, I'll just write this paragraph. I'll just try this, and then I can delete it. It won't be any good, but at least it'll be a start. Or I'll put on Beethoven or Bob Dylan. I'll put on any kind of music which is uncompromisingly loud where the composer seems convinced and confident, and then I'll think, okay, I'm going to borrow. I'm borrowing from Bob Dylan and Beethoven at the moment.
0: (laughs) confessions of a writer (laughs) just in closing I think Gina also says in her fragments from a writer's diary she says I sent the book to Victor today whatever he says the man who loved crocodile tamers is the novel I wanted to write and that I finished it without breaking
1: down did you finish it without breaking down Um, that's not really true (laughs) (laughs) the book was very hard and the in the writing of the book I did sometimes find myself weeping and then in the, the various stages we've just referred to lightly that happen, that a book isn't written from beginning to end, for example. So the rewriting there was a, a complete last-minute rewriting of what became the genus section. And I, I had got some quite harrowing criticism from two sources. And I, that was when, funnily enough, that was when Doubt did step back, when, when, I, when this criticism was so harsh From the nameless external reader, and and from a relative of mine, I I actually thought, no damn this, it is a good book. I do believe in it. I am going to make it the best it can be, and um, and it was it was just it was like breaking down, but it was like gritting my teeth as well and saying, I'm not going to. I'm going to push through. Yeah, it's without a doubt the hardest book I've ever written. (laughs) may this never happen again (laughs) it is a remarkable book it is a remarkable book and
0: I have to say that when I got to the end I too wept I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad (laughs) thing but I howled when I got to the end largely because I'd finished it because I enjoyed it so much Finola darling thank you so much for sharing all these innermost thoughts thank you thank you Nancy
1: you're a wonderful interviewer (laughs)